0: Good morning, everyone. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This passage was read earlier this morning, and we're going to make it the focus of our, of our study together this morning as well. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23 will be our passage for this morning. Here are... Departed brother Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you so much uh, for your word. I thank you for this time of year in which we we think about the long wait for the Messiah from that from that first promise to Adam and Eve of the the seed who would come and crush the serpent's head. It was a long wait. And we celebrate Advent, the first coming of our Lord Jesus, over a period of a month in order to think about that long wait and all the prophecies that led up to and were fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus for our salvation. And we look forward to the coming year in which we can contemplate the life of our Lord Jesus And all that he's done for us, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to your right hand, his pouring out of the Spirit, and all that he's done ever since then to build his church, promising that he'll always be with us and that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. We thank you, Lord, for the chance to remember how you have kept your word. Help us now as we seek to understand these words Fill us with your spirit to that end, I pray, and encourage our hearts, I ask, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I would would guess that most of us are familiar with the history of how Thomas Jefferson uh, sought to remove all the miraculous elements from the Bible, particularly from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, but perhaps we're less familiar with his particular assertions regarding Jesus' virgin birth. And here's what Jefferson said in a a letter dated April 11th, 1823, which he wrote to John Adams. There's some interesting discussion between him and John Adams. I think John Adams, who I don't think was a Calvinist himself, was trying to get uh, Jefferson to agree with the Calvinistic view of suffering and so forth. But... um, they, they, wrote, they had some interesting conversations, these two, but this tells you something about where Jefferson was at, and a lot of naturalistic people were this way in his day. Here's what he wrote. The truth is that the greatest enemies of the doctrines of Jesus are those calling themselves the expositors of them who have perverted them for the structure of a system of fancy absolutely incomprehensible and without any foundation in his genuine words. And the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. But we may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with all this artificial scaffolding And restore to us the primitive and genuine doctrines of this most venerated reformer of human errors. So he wants to venerate Jesus, he just doesn't want to believe anything Jesus actually said about himself. Um, Typical of guys like like Jefferson and people like that today. Uh, What Jefferson wrote there is about as clear a denial of the virgin birth as one could possibly find. Uh, He classified it with ancient Greek myths and Roman myths and so forth that should just be thrown on the trash heap of history. And the basis for his rejection of the virgin birth is, is clear as well, namely a naturalistic rationalism that denies even the possibility of such supernatural events. Anything that's supernatural is by definition to them impossible because only the natural world exists in their eyes, which is just utter foolishness. I would assume he, he believed he had a mind, for example. And that's not a material thing. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, he just didn't think anybody else had a mind, apparently. But uh, <clears throat> he was self-deceived, wasn't he? Um, he was so self-deceived that he actually thought our Lord Jesus must be the same kind of naturalistic rationalist that he was. However, as we're going to see in our text this morning, Uh, Jefferson was wrong. (laughs) Uh, The Apostle Matthew gives us the true account of Jesus' birth, despite Jefferson's protestations to the contrary. What we're reading this morning, Jefferson wanted ripped out of the Gospel of Matthew. He didn't want anybody to read it or believe it. There's a lot of people out there like that today, but we know better, don't we? We know that this is true. Now, the birth, we read in verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 20, and then sort of summarize what's being said there. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed, which means engaged or contracted, better, contracted to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or a righteous man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, and we're not told who this one was. We know that Gabriel appeared to, to Mary, for example, to announce the birth of Jesus. But he doesn't say here who it was. We only know the names, what, a couple of angels, Michael, Gabriel. Um, well, there's the one in the hymn this morning who said, Hark, Glory to the newborn king. His name is Harold. But, but he's not in the Bible, right? He's not in the Bible. Um, that would be th- something Jefferson would be right. We should get rid of that if we try to put that in the Bible. But um, at any rate, this angel, an angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, the the references to Joseph as the husband of Mary and to Mary as the wife of Joseph may be confusing to many modern readers since the two of them had not yet come together in marital and domestic union, as uh, one lexicon puts it. But this way of speaking reflects the Jewish culture at the time in which betrothal between a man and a woman was a contractual relationship that was legally binding. As Bob Utley has correctly observed, Betrothal was a legally binding Jewish custom, usually lasting about a year before marriage. The parties lived separately, but were considered contractually married. Only death or divorce could break the betrothal arrangement. Of course, this was a Jewish custom that isn't necessarily something you have to follow biblically, right? It's just just one of their customs. And Joseph and Mary, being good Jewish people, followed such customs, And so according to the Jewish custom at the time, Joseph and Mary would have been viewed as legally married in most respects. They wouldn't have lived together, right? Uh, And they would have been viewed as legally married, despite the fact that there hadn't yet been a marriage ceremony even. Um, And, of course, the marriage had not yet been consummated. And this is why Matthew speaks of Joseph's desire to put her away secretly, Um, the Greek word translated to put away here can be used of divorce and this was the legal step that Joseph was actually contemplating a writing of divorce although he was going to do it secretly in order to save Mary any public embarrassment. Although Joseph clearly knew that Mary had been found with child uh, he didn't yet know what Matthew's already told us, the reader, right, that the pregnancy was of the Holy Spirit, is in the end of verse eighteen. There, so while Joseph thought about these things, we're told, which would have been Mary's pregnancy and his plan to divorce her secretly, in the context, he's at least thinking about those things, right? Um, we're told that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David." Do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Notice that the angel seeks to alleviate Joseph's fear. Uh, Joseph was afraid to take Mary to be his wife after he found out that she was pregnant. And uh, we can only imagine why that would be so. No doubt he knew that he would be subject to much ridicule and he knew that Mary would be potentially as well, and and we know that was on his mind because the text says so. Um, As for Joseph, he could easily lose his reputation and social standing as a righteous man. He was known to be a just, a righteous man. His reputation could be lost. Uh, So the angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, and he gave the reason that he should not be afraid when he said, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." So in other words, Joseph need not fear what his fellow Jews might think or say or whatever repercussions might come his way or Mary's way, for that matter, since he knew that God himself was behind what was happening. Joseph could therefore be assured that God would protect him and Mary from any of these severe repercussions. I mean, if it's true what the angel is saying, and Joseph believed it was true, and that this was all God's plan that this great miracle take place, then there was no need to fear what men could do. And we too may face public derision from unbelievers because we dare to believe in the virgin birth, much as like Jefferson mocked the faith of John Adams and anyone like him who believed in the virgin birth. Uh, There's still people like that around, plenty of them. We too can be assured that God will bless us and use us for his glory as we seek to be faithful to him, right? We don't need to fear either. The repercussions to us are gonna be far less severe than they could have been for Joseph. And if he need not fear, surely we need not fear. As the author of Hebrews admonishes us, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? At any rate, so far in this account, we've been twice told that the pregnancy of Mary was due to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. First, in Matthew's introduction to the birth narrative, we're told that. And then in the recorded words of the angel, we're told that. You get the idea that he's trying to make a point, right? Very clearly. To the reader. To you and I. But we haven't yet examined all the angel's words, so we'll turn our attention to them now, starting with verse 21. We're told what the angel said, And she will bring forth a son... And you, as interesting there, it's singular, you, particularly, Joseph. He's telling Joseph he has to do this. And you shall call him, his name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua. We usually translate it Joshua. Uh, And that literally means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. That is the name that Joseph is to give the son who will be born of Mary. The first thing Joseph will do as the father of Jesus is to name him Jesus in obedience to the words of the Lord through this angel. And the angel tells Joseph the reason that he wanted to name him Jesus, and that is that he will save his people from their sins. Why do, you want, why do you name him Yahweh saves? Because that's what he's going to do. And so we're told here in what sense Jesus would be a savior, right? He was not going to be a political or military savior, for example, but rather a spiritual savior, a savior from sin. This is important because the Jewish people constantly wanted Jesus to be a political or military savior and from the very beginning Matthew's making it clear that that's not what he was going to be doing he was coming to save his people from their sins so for those of us who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior we're immediately reminded that he was born in order to die for our sins after having of course lived a sinless life And then rising from the dead and ascending to the Father's right hand. This is how he saved us from our sins, right? So we know the whole story that Joseph didn't yet know. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins, right? We know that means he's going to live a perfectly righteous life, die on the cross, bear the wrath of God for our sins there, rise from the dead and conquer death on our behalf, ascend to the Father's right hand from which he'll bestow the Holy Spirit and he'll... Ever lived to intercede for those for whom he has died. We know all of that that Joseph didn't know. We've got a lot to celebrate, don't we, when we look back on the birth of Jesus. And we cannot truly celebrate Christmas then without thinking about more than just the virgin birth of Jesus. We focus on it because it's foundational to everything else, though. Without the virgin birth, none of that other, none of those other saving aspects of the work of Jesus could have happened. We must remember, though, that all of those other things are important. The whole life and ministry of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ should be remembered. Uh, Christmas is an especially good time to remember the words of Paul to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, when he wrote, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. But we know, of course, as I said before, that Jesus first had to take on human flesh and become as one of us in order to offer himself for our sins, as the author of Hebrews so for- forcefully reminds us in Hebrews 2. And we read this a few weeks back. Verses 14 through 17 of Hebrews 2 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him with the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And of course, Paul tells us that Jesus did that when he died for our sins. That's how he made propitiation. He bore the wrath of God and was therefore the wrath and he sacrificed for our sins. And the author of Hebrews tells us what we must assume when we read Matthew 1. He had to be born a human being to do that. And that's that's why if you ever run across someone who claims to be a Christian and thinks that the virgin birth or the incarnation are not important doctrines, that flies directly in the face of Scripture. These are absolutely essential. This doctrine of the virgin birth, the incarnation of Christ, is the core of our faith. So when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating really one of the most important aspects of Christian theology One of the most important events that ever happened in the history of the world, the birth of Jesus Christ, without which our salvation would be impossible. It had to be this way for us to be saved, according to Scripture. There could not be any salvation any other way. And this is why he was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Matthew is careful to make clear what he says in verses 22 and 23 we told that all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, Matthew's making sure we understand what this other name he would be called, Emmanuel, Means and therefore something of what the virgin birth is about. God being with us. Right? Matthew's actually citing a very significant messianic prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, uh, Matthew, Isaiah rather 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. If you have a good study Bible or Bible with cross references, Matt or excuse me, Isaiah 7.14 should be right there. Uh, As a cross-reference, Matthew, I keep wanting to say Matthew, it's Isaiah 7.14 says, therefore the Lord himself, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what is the sign? This is the sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that is the statement cited by Matthew Now, note, though, that Isaiah refers to the virgin birth as a sign, and Matthew presumes we would know that when he cites this text. And that's important because it highlights the way we should think about the virgin birth, or at least one key way we should think about the virgin birth. In fact, the Hebrew word translated sign often refers especially to miraculous signs. Signs that are intended to show the authenticity of of a word from God and to assure his people that he will fulfill his promises. In this case, the virgin birth is a miraculous sign that proves that God has kept his promise to save his people. This is why Matthew cites the text with reference to Jesus being born as the one who would save his people from their sins. The angel said that's what he's going to do and Matthew said that is in fulfillment of this prophecy of a sign that was to be given. Clearly then, Matthew saw Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this promised sign that a virgin would conceive. And just as clearly, Matthew saw the virgin birth as connected to the mystery of the incarnation. Because he cited Isaiah 7.14 and pointed out that the meaning of Emmanuel is God with us. So the virgin birth is a miraculous sign from God that he has acted to save his people from their sins and that he has done so by taking on human flesh. As the Apostle John says in his gospel, uh, some people think that John sort of ignores the birth narrative that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly in Matthew and Luke, but he actually has his own way of talking about the incarnation. He begins really where Matthew begins his gospel, with the incarnation. He just does it in a different way. Uh, The apostle John says in his gospel that the word who was with God in the beginning and who was God and through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that was made, this word, he says, became flesh and dwelt among us. He's referring there to the virgin birth. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. But Matthew's identification of Jesus as Emmanuel also has another comforting application for his followers which I think is brought out well in the ESV study Bible notes. Here's what they say. Matthew thus presents the virgin birth of Jesus as God's miraculous fulfillment of this promise in the person of Jesus the Messiah. This brings further affirmation of the promise that God, Emmanuel, will be with his disciples in every age to empower them in their commission to make disciples of all nations. As Jesus reaffirms in the closing words of Matthew's gospel, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, God wasn't just with us through the Lord Jesus Christ when he was born of the Virgin Mary and lived his life on this earth, then died on the cross, and then rose from the dead. Jesus is still with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. I'll conclude this message with a reminder of the way that Matthew stresses the fact that the virgin birth is something that only God himself could perform. Matthew makes this abundantly clear. Um this was, this was of the Holy Spirit. This is something only God could do and did do. And I think that very fact is a reminder that salvation is always the work of God on our behalf. And and that therefore salvation is always by grace not something that we can do for ourselves. As Wayne Grudem aptly observes in his systematic theology text, the virgin birth shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. Just as God had promised that the seed of the woman would ultimately destroy the serpent, so God brought it about by his own power, not through mere human effort. The virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that salvation can never come through human effort but must be the work of God himself. Our salvation only comes about through the supernatural work of God, and that was evident at the very beginning of Jesus' life when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And there he's citing Galatians 4, 4 and 5. So as we come into this coming week where we're all celebrating Christmas, let's remember that it's a celebration not only of the power of God to save us, but also the grace of God in providing Jesus as our Savior and accomplishing through him all that is necessary to save us from our sins. That's what the angel said. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And That's a reference to all that he's done for us. It's my prayer that we won't forget that as we celebrate this Christmas season. As as Randy Stonehill put it in his song, Christmas song for all year round. I wonder if this Christmas they'll begin to understand that Jesus, the Jesus that they celebrate was much more than a man. Because the way the world is, I don't see how people can deny the only way to save us was for Jesus Christ to die. I know that if St. Nicholas was here, he would agree that Jesus gave the greatest gift of all to you and me. They led him to the slaughter on a hill called Calvary, and we were all forgiven when they nailed him to the tree. He thought we should sing a Christmas song all year round, so he wrote one. <laughs> I think he was probably right. We should keep the virgin birth in mind all year round. We sometimes forget this important aspect of the saving work of Christ. But it's crucial. It's crucial. If Jesus wasn't born in that manger in Bethlehem all those years ago, we would have no hope of salvation. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you so much for all that Jesus has done for us to save us from our sins. And I thank you for how it began, his work, being born a human being in that humble circumstance. So many years ago, announced by the angels. We believe, we believe that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that he lived a sinless life. We believe that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. We believe that he has ascended to your right hand. We believe that he is with us to the end of the age. We believe that he is coming again. We believe everything that your word says about him. And we will not let the Thomas Jeffersons of this world cause us to doubt what we know to be true. We will hold fast to the faith. We live in a world that mocks our faith more and more every day. But we trust in you, Lord Jesus. We count on you through thick and thin. We know who you are. We have put all of our faith in you to save us from our sins. And we will not let go of you because you will never let go of us. We love you because you first loved us and you came to die for our sins. We praise you. We thank you. We celebrate what you have done. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.